0: Hi, folks. Thanks for tuning in again. Just a couple of housekeeping things before we get on with the show this week. Uh, first, I want to thank everybody who's been subscribing and listening to the show. Uh, our, our listenership is growing, and that is hugely important to Mark and I. Glad that people are taking the time to listen to uh, this endeavor that we've taken on. And... Um, if you, if you want to help us out at all, the best thing you can do is just rate us. If you're listening on iTunes or on um, SoundCloud or Stitcher, if you could just go ahead and, and give us a review and a rating, um, that helps us. It helps us to know that what we're doing is good and helping people and engaging with people. Um, also, uh, I welcome everyone to reach out on Facebook. We do have a Facebook page. Uh, It can only be as active as our listeners want it to be. Uh, We would love to interact with you there. So uh, posting there, uh, posing questions, continuing the discussions that we're having here on the podcast on an online forum there would be absolutely great. And of course, you can always reach us by email at wickeddiscussions at gmail.com. Um, now, for this week's show, uh, it, it's great, and we're going to talk about education and the larger picture of education with uh, Brad Kirshner, and it's a fantastic discussion, but I do want people to know that uh, there was a little construction going on in Jacob Lane's studio this week, so you might hear some of that in the background. And also our, our Skype connection with Brad was not the best. And so there are a couple places where it cuts out. Now I'm going to try and do some creative editing around that to keep the, the discussion more fluid. Um, but if you hear some breakup and stuff, uh, my apologies. Uh, I just didn't want to cut it out because I felt like there was something that was being said uh, that was too important to not leave in. So, with all that being said, uh, again, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. And um, here's this week's show.
1: Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to Wicked Discussions. I'm Mark Fischler.
0: And I'm Ian Halter. We think it's time to have some hard discussions.
1: When we say hard, we mean that we're going to have to listen and acknowledge that other people's perspectives are meaningful and therefore have a valuable piece of the discussion.
0: If we're being faced with wicked problems, then we figured it was about time to have some wicked discussions.
1: If there's a wicked problem facing the world, we plan to talk about it with civility and respect for all involved.
0: So thanks again for tuning in. And now let's dive into this week's Wicked Discussion. Hi, folks, and welcome to another edition of uh, Wicked Discussions. I'm Ian. I'm Mark. And uh, Mark, you know what? What, Ian? I'm just—I'm really confused with the educational system these days. It seems like uh, we just keep starting at ground zero. I send my kid to school. You know, you know, we both have a yeah, uh, almost eight-year-old right now, and why are we still? Uh, why are we still using pencils to figure out math? I mean
1: <laughs> You don't like pencils, Ian?
0: Well, it's not that I don't like the pencils, but like we all have calculators in our pockets now. You remember when we were kids, our yeah.
1: yeah, I know the that whole thing and it's it's crazy cuz that's like Aurora's prized possession that her aunt Valerie got her at the dollar store or something like that was a was a little calculator to make these quick additions. So I don't know. I'm, I, I don't know what's going on.
0: I mean, I just think that if we, if we could teach with the fundamentals of the technology that we have today, then maybe we could also spend some more time teaching other things in the school system besides just the basics of reading and writing, but you know, how to live in this world together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, the whole issue of technology and its right use is uh, a huge issue and, and, Fortunately, today we've got Brad Kirshner, uh, who's uh, a, a, just a wonderful educator, uh, thoughtful human being, who's uh, on the show today. So, uh, Brad, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. So good to be here.
1: Let me let me say a few things about Brad, and then let's let's get into this. So, Brad is a school leader and educational theorist. He's currently head of the early school at Carolina Friends School in Durham, North Carolina. He undergoes a master's in philosophy of religion at the University of Chicago great school and a Ph.D. in education at Boston College, another great school. Uh, His recent writings and presentations have addressed topics such as complex systems, mindfulness and meditation, human development, integral theory, racism, and the use and misuse of technology in education. So... Uh, Brad, welcome to the show and we've got this you know kind of wicked issue of 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 education because you know we we don't know where tomorrow is totally going and we know too that there are, are serious issues in the way uh, in terms of equity in terms of how everybody has a chance to be fully educated. we know, there's differences between urban and rural schools and really just all over the world. Like, what are we going to do to to develop uh, people to a stage of awareness where we can be really successful in the world that we live in? So I know I just threw out a lot, and we're just going to let you deep dive. But again, welcome to the show. Uh, honored to have you and, and honored to listen and learn. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It is, it is such a wicked... Issue, right? I think I think education is
0: a great example of how you, you, you can't really look closely at one aspect of it without realizing how it's hitched
2: to all these other aspects, right? Because if you're gonna talk about education, you're gonna talk about a certain perspective on education, right? And mm-hmm. and, and and sort of you're gonna be presupposing certain goals um, and certain ideals. And then once you really look at that, then you start to realize, well, there are different perspectives on education, and there's so many um, interrelated things in society in terms of how does the economy impact education, like you said, location, and, and equity, and demographics um, all, all have an impact, and there's this historical picture, right? So we have to understand sort of how things have gotten to be the way they are, and sort of why... Why are things the way they are? And how do we understand our moment in time? Because it's one thing to think about um, child development and human development and what we should be doing, but then there's also ways in which education now is very different than education 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So picking all that apart um, is a really important thing to do. And it's a big part of what I try to do when I'm working with teachers and parents is To try to get some clarity around a certain ideal for education, right? Trying to get people on board in terms of creating educational environments that are conducive to human development.
1: I think that it would be useful for our listeners to kind of think about human development, uh, you know, at least child development in terms of, you know, stages, processes, values, um, those kinds of things, so that we can then kind of critique or at least look at the public school system and the way that we educate and how either there's a misalignment there or there's an alignment there
2: yeah so so the thing about human development is it's it's so interesting because it implicates ourselves right like there are there are more or less developed perspectives on human development right there there, there are more or less mature views of human maturity So as soon as you start talking about human development, you're sort of implicating yourself um, and giving yourself a chance to to have some metacognition about what perspective you're coming from. Um, And then there's also sort of the domains of adult development and sort of understanding what perspectives can we take on education and how do those perspectives relate to um, how things have unfolded historically, like what perspectives have dominated at different places and different times that have led to environments being shaped in certain ways. Um, and then also child development, which is which is in some ways simpler um, because children are not actually creating their own environments. So one thing to think about um, for me is I often like to start with thinking about adult development because... It helps to think about, you know, what perspectives we're coming from right now, right, and, 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 and how that has shaped education. Um, and one way to unpack that is to think about the complexity of cognitive development, and then also different values and sort of differentiating those things. So there's, there's, there, there's different models of adult development that have to do with complexity, um, for instance, like Kurt Fisher is a great theorist. Mm -hmm. Michael Commons is a great theorist. Um, So as we're going through these stages of cognitive development, it's really helpful to see that they sort of build on each other and there is this hierarchy and and they've they've sort of manifested at different times and different places.
0: We've got this new generation of kids coming through and we want to uh, instill not just the, the, was it four R's, three R's, whatever it is, but we also want to help them understand their place in the world and the world is a larger picture, which is great. Kids are kind of malleable and and they're easy to teach. But what about their parents, let's say? Um, how do you explain this to parents? How do you start talking to them about introducing these concepts into school um, and even uh, spark a receptiveness on their part. Maybe they're not receptive and they like the way things are going right now.
2: One thing I find talking to parents is trying to get a sense of where they're coming from, right? Because when I'm thinking about childhood education, um, I'm trying to focus on how do we enact an environment that's going to lead to the healthy flourishing of these children so that they can progress as far as they can on their own path and just be who they are. And be someone who's really going to help make the world a better place, right? But when I'm talking to parents, or when we are thinking about that as parents, um, there are so many different ideals that kind of rub against each other, Mm -hmm. right? So our education system right now, um, and where many people are coming from in raising their children, is what I would think of as a very conventional perspective, right? Because we have a world, we have a society, we have many things, that are sort of normal in society today. Like, for instance, you know, people want their children to do good in school. We want our children to get good grades. We want them to learn. We want them to go to college. We want them to get a job. We want them to make money. And there's, just, there's this social world that we're kind of taking as a given. And there's so much stress and, and, and anxiety for parents to want their children to be successful in that world. And they're trying to be successful in that world. But there are also perspectives that are available to us as parents and as educators where we can become post-conventional, right? We can start to see through and critique the world we're living in and envision a better world, right? We can, we, we can think about um, the problem with the market right now, sort of market-based solutions to the world. We can, we can look at higher education and see that it's actually a mess and that and that actually going to college might not be the best thing for everyone, right? We, we can think about broader horizons for our children. And, and I think that the more that we as parents and educators are able to sort of get out of standard narratives around what our goals are and take a broader view of, of, of goals and ideals so that we're thinking about not helping our children to be successful in the world as it is, but really helping our children to change the world and make the world a better place, once we sort of establish that ground and establish that more post-conventional ideal, then we as adults will be in a space where we are better able to approach the process of human development and the process of raising our children in a way that's actually going to be better for them, right? Because the world we're living in now, there's so much stress and anxiety in schools and there's so much pressure on our children Um, And there's such a standardization of the educational process. And that, in a way, is also related to how so many adults today are stressed out and overworked. And, you know, burnout and stress and anxiety are just really prevalent social problems. And our psychological and emotional health as parents across the spectrum of society is, is is not in a good place. And that's trickling down to our children. Wow. So we as parents need to be in a place where we're grounded and then we can help our kids be more grounded. So, so, the, so, so, so that's where I, I, I try to start with parents is just really making that distinction between conventional and post-conventional. Mm-hmm. And then once you're there, then I can talk with them about, okay, so what are the things that actually help children to be more um, healthy and happy and on the road to development, right? And then we can start talking about things like secure attachment. Um, and creativity, and time in nature, and really emphasizing social relationships and how, how are we teaching children to actually be humans? And what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be in relationship? What does it mean to collaborate? What does it mean to be solving problems in relationship with other people? As opposed to, you know, school being a process whereby you get information, you regurgitate that information Everyone's expected to be doing the same thing at the same time.
0: So my question, I guess, would be, or perhaps a casual observation, is I think that kids, when they start this process, are are more at the point that you're talking about as an end point. Um, And it's really the parents that sort of change their mindset. I'm, I'm kind of thinking about uh, an old John Lennon anecdote when a teacher asked him when he was young what he wanted to be when he grew up. And he said, I want to be happy. And the teacher said, I don't think you understand the question. Mm-hmm. And his response was, I don't think mm-hmm. you understand the answer. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah, that's great. You know, that's a really that's a really interesting insight there is there's ways in which children are tuned into life in a way that adults have lost and it would benefit us to tune back in to that sort of wavelength where they are in some ways in the present and oriented in like healthy and natural ways. Um, And then, of course, there's other ways in which like development is real and kids tend to be more narcissistic than we are and and don't have the complexity that we do. But it's like how do you go through the process of maturation and, and continue to develop the complexity of your perspective taking but actually not lose touch with that sort of grounded, embodied, emotional Joyful, playful, playful. You know. And me personally, like I'm someone who has spent a lot of time reading and studying and meditating. But being a parent now of a nine-year-old and being an early childhood educator has helped me so much to stay in tune with that childlike playfulness and that joy of life. And it's something that we all do need to to stay in tune with. Because really, what's it all about if we're not if we're not living in joy and living in love and living in in that relationship? With, with children. And it also, for me, like being with children in that way and learning, being open to learning from children in that way. I've read and learned and to not just transmit it verbally or through writing, but presence, right? Like how do we as adults actually show up with a presence with children that actually transmits what we know and what we understand and some degree of wisdom and maturity, right? And and, and actually when you engage that sort of more subtle process as an adult and you actually become really sensitive to how you're in relationship with other people and especially to your own children or if you're a teacher, to your students. And if you're tuned in to that really emotional embodied relationship and being attuned to children emotionally and seeing where they're at and seeing them all as individuals – then you're really engaging what I think is the ideal educational relationship where, you know, I mean, that's that's what it's all about, right? Like being humans together and being tuned into each other and not being stuck at that sort of mental abstract level of like relaying information and ideas. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Could you talk to us about what you see uh, as an educator as some of the ways... Uh, that we go about conventionally educating our our kids, and at least through the public school system and the and all the the testing and 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 some of the ways that you describe, what are what are some of the problems? I guess what are what are some of the problems that you see, and then we can maybe look at from a developmental perspective ways that we can maybe do a better job in some of the ways that you and Ian were just talking about in terms of interrelating interconnecting, collaborating, seeing the whole human, all of that. Where, How are we coming up short in, you know, th- that's led you to, to be a, a part of an alternative school?
2: Um, a lot of the problems that we have in education come down to standardization and our inability to really um, embody and acknowledge how people actually are unique, creative individuals. Um and I think the reason for that is, you know, and, and, and this gets into this bigger picture of development and how it's in is there are a lot of background assumptions um, and stories that are sort of animating what's happening in society. And this is one reason why education is such a, is, is such a wicked problem, because of the way that it's tied into our government and economics. Um you know, one, one way of describing a sort of background assumption of what's happening is reductive human capital theory, right? So one way that we reduce the complexity of what it is to be a human and reduce the complexity of education is to sort of make everything a commodity, right? So education is tied into a bigger economic structure, which right now we're seeing relies on the commodification of 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 everything, right? So education is a commodity and children are seen partly as the commodity itself. Like they're the product and we're, we're we've sort of found ourselves in the system where in, in order to ascertain whether education is working or not, we have to be able to quantify it. Right? So once we quantify educational value, we've reduced the complexity immensely. Right? And when you reduce the complexity in that way, and make it so that you have to quantify it, you have to therefore standardize it, right? Otherwise, whatever you're quantifying or measuring isn't gonna mean anything. So, once you sort of buy into this notion that you have to um, assess and judge and compare in order to determine educational value, then you're gonna be on a very toward um, standardization and toward quantification, right? So what we see, how this has played out over the last 30, 40 years, is our educational systems have been more and more about manipulating those quantifiable outcomes, right? So it's really been a race to the bottom to have lots of perverse incentives within the educational system to simply manipulate test scores, right? Because that's that ends up being the way that we're determining educational value. So we have to find a way of getting out of that quantified, reductionist, standardized notion of how do we determine, you know, whether or not kids are learning, right? It's a very reduced idea about about what learning is all about. Um, and it's also leading to other sort of split-off aspects um, that are coming from that because, um, I mean, it's, it's a bigger story, but it also has to do with sort of the big political movement right now and a big privatization movement because that's a bigger story. I'm I'm not sure if if we want to go down there, but it does have to do with money. It has to do with money and how also we have perverse incentives within our educational system to actually, um, like I said, commodify it and have it influence GDP. So perpetual education reform where a lot of money is being poured into the testing industry and a lot of money is actually being poured into technology. That's good for the economy. Also, privatizing schools is good for the economy. So there are perverse incentives that that sort of all intermesh together, which really have nothing to do with educational psychology, with understanding human development, with really understanding what works for children, and a lot of educational policy over the last 30 years has really not been influenced by the educational sciences. It's been influenced by the demands of the bureaucracy of education itself um, and, and of the sort of economic generators that sort of plug into our educational systems.
1: If, if, if we took the educational sciences into account, what would they... What would they be saying we need to be doing in uh, our schooling uh, to, to, you know, develop a holistic child in, in a way that's going to be able to navigate uh, the uncertainty of tomorrow, which, you know, we know is, is so deeply uncertain in this 21st century?
2: It has to do with understanding not just the complexity of educational Um, systems but also just the complexity of each human like we are all embodied beings right we have a connection to each other we have a connection to our ecosystem Um, and understanding that cognitive learning and social emotional learning are both addressed when our overall developmental needs are addressed and that actually ties into understanding human development and human evolution so one interesting question for me is how does the development of the individual relate to the development of our species, right? Because we we actually learn a lot of things by looking back at how we've evolved and how we are such social creatures, right? So when I think about the kinds of educational environments we need, I think about what is sort of the ideal situations for humans to be together. So one notion is having a holistic view of development, right, where it's not just about cognition, and it's not just about transmitting knowledge, but it's actually about: Are you healthy socially and emotionally? Do you have a have a have a positive sense of self? Um, and are you able to actually engage in work creatively and authentically, so that you are um, processing information and learning information, and actually moving forward in your own growth and development with your own. Um, with your own interests and your own initiative because you can't really force learning. I mean, we all know this from, 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 our own experience that, that the main ingredient in learning is engagement, right? Engagement is so key and being able to engage learning and life in a sort of playful um, attitude, which, which like you said, is so natural for children, right? Like we, children have such a natural inclination toward play and toward being engaged and toward following their interests and we have, to be, we have to be nurturing that and encouraging that. And one of the ways that we do that is, first of all, by seeing them as really sacred individuals, right? Not standardizing their experience, not, not transmitting to them in so many ways the communication that, um, you know, focusing on how they measure up against others. Like, for instance, you know, when we're thinking about young children and learning to read— it is very possible for all four, five, six, seven-year-old children to be in educational environments where they all learn to read, but it never becomes this hyper-competitive thing where they're getting feedback about whether or not they're a good reader or a bad reader, right? And that happens in so many schools because the, the, the process is standardized. So if you have 25-year-old children, you know, some of them are going to be getting feedback that they're smart and they're intelligent and they're good readers and others it's just not going to be clicking for them, and that's going to affect their sense of self. It's going to affect the, the way they move through the educational system. And if it was just more individualized, um, it, it would it would really be conducive to their growth, not just in reading, but also in all the other aspects of their life. Um, and another way to have that individuality is having classrooms that are not structured so that it's just one adult and a group of same-age children where the hierarchy is really clear. So when I think about human development, I think about how we evolved in tribes and small groups. And having what I think of as tribal classrooms is an ideal for human development because it means you have ideally more than one adult and you have children of different ages and they all know each other really well and they have really close, trusting, loving relationships and you have decentralized environments so that people can be doing different things at different times and the things that they're doing um, are partly coming from them and what they want to do, right? So it's the adult's responsibility to shape that environment, to have materials and learning opportunities available, but also to be creating a culture in that classroom where children have choice and they can work independently and in groups, and you have adults working together, so it's not just an isolated teacher in a classroom. Um, And I'm not sure how sort of idealistic or unrealistic that sounds, but I'm actually describing the school that I work in to some degree. I mean, it it is very possible once you, once you have the independence and the autonomy to come together as adults and really just think about, okay, what kind of environment do we want to create? um, It's completely possible, you know? Um, And then one other aspect I would mention is just having a sense of developmental timing. So especially when we're thinking about early childhood education, Part of what really respecting the child as an individual means is understanding that earlier is not always better, and we're not really just pushing children to do more and more and more and faster, but we're really just able to be responsive to them and see where they're at and figure out with them what is the next step for them, whether you're talking about math or reading or writing or or any other more, more, more specialized project. Um, and, and, that, and, that, and that sense of really um, allowing the process to unfold in a natural and organic way that feels good as much as possible every step of the way and having a more emergent understanding of how, process, um, of, of, of how the developmental process unfolds as opposed to having a more linear, um, straightforward, sort of backwards planning notion of how things should unfold. So, like, in education, there's this notion of backwards planning. And it's it, it, it's a very linear, sort of straightforward, logical approach, meaning, okay, if by 12th grade, you know, you need to get here and you need to know X, Y, Z in order to go to college, that means by 10th grade you should know this and you'll be on track, which means by 6th grade you need to know this. And it just keeps going back, whether you're talking about the scope of your years in school or whether you're talking about within one year, you know figuring out where you want kids to be and then backwards planning so that you can figure out every step for them. That's what, once you sort of step into thinking in that way as a teacher or as a parent, you're shutting down all of the creative and emergent possibilities that can arise when you're in relationship with children in just a much more open um, and just creative and less, less deterministic way, which which is hard to do, right? So then we get into, you know, if, if, if that's going to be our vision for an ideal educational environment, um, and I think it is, you know, and, and I think a lot of these distinctions between a sort of what I think of as a modernist, linear, like hyper-rational, like reductionistic way of thinking about how to create an uh, an educational environment, which is focused on, you know, transmitting information, information, um, quantifying and standardizing you know what what's what's happening having clear hierarchies in terms of who's doing good and who's doing bad versus a more open creative emergent individualist decentralized environment like that's a really important distinction but the issue we're facing is you know how do we get more adults to to be seeing that and to be in a space where they really can live into that themselves and really understand um, that that's possible and sort of why why they should be trying to create that more decentralized environment.
1: Yeah. I was going to just, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I was just going to add that, you know, we're going to need the teachers and the parents to have that recognition of why a holistic human being to develop a holistic being and with multiple intelligence and, Multiple ways of relating to the universe that is truly interconnected with all beings to actually see that as a value, and then seeing how the way that we educate in our public schools generally doesn't uh, come up to that or meet that. And so, but it's really going to require people uh, at, a, at, a, at a certain stage of, of human understanding or either the The life conditions of the world have to change enough that will that will kind of uh, force folks to start to contemplate these deeper realities of seeing their child more or, or seeing their students in a more holistic manner. So it's um, it's it's a wicked problem. But I you know I want to just comment and say you know what a rich. Uh, vision that you have uh, created in your school uh, to support, you know, your students. I w- want to ask, so w- with the standardized testing and, you know, the reductio absurdia that, that it can create, um, how do, uh, what what are some of the things that you think, how do we assess schools in terms of their ability to be effective? How do we assess uh, whether a student is organically through their individual process are developing in ways so that they can be um, you know adults that are uh, contributing to society in a way with a deeper vision of our interconnection and all of that mm-hmm.
2: yeah no great great question and the thing is it's not, it's not that hard to do at a certain scale, right? Like at the scale of a school, um, it's, it's quite possible for say 500 people to know each other really well. And for teachers and students to have relationships where the teachers are getting to know the students really well and vice versa. And they're in communication with the parents and they're, is also a leadership team involved, which is aware of what's happening at the school. And, you know, the children are doing all kinds of work. Um, and there, there's lots of work being done. And that work is in relationship with adults who are guiding that work and are assessing that work and are giving feedback on that work. And, like, at our school, we do narrative feedback and assessments. So every teacher writes, you know, pretty lengthy narrative assessments at the end of each um trimester and then of course is doing smaller assessments throughout each trimester giving feedback but it's about the work it's about the learning it's about the process right and close attention to process leads to exceptional outcomes right a focus on outcomes perverts the process and actually leads to worse outcomes right so the thing is at, at the scale of a school it's very, I wouldn't say easy, but it's actually very natural. And I think a lot of teachers, like one of the biggest tragedies of education, and I know because I've worked at public schools, charter schools, and private schools in cities all around the country, and so many people who get into teaching, the kind of environment I'm talking about are the kinds of environments they want to be in, right? Like There's yeah. so many young teachers who are very idealistic, and they all want to be at a school where the principal's saying what I'm saying, you know, and like they all they all want that, but they enter these huge bureauc- these huge bureaucracies, where the scale is too big because it's at the level of a city or a state, and it's all about um, it's all about data, right? And like big data, and, and 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 the way that like we're going to scale with quantified data, and therefore reducing value to that data is what we need to get out of, and. Another tragic irony of the situation is that charter schools began as a progressive idea to enable schools to have more autonomy so that they could actually enact the kind of environments that I want to enact, right? Like, and it, 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 It's because it's true. I think schools do need more autonomy. And a big problem in public education is when you're in a huge bureaucracy, the way that um, Complexity gets reduced at each stage of interaction, right? So it's like if the superintendent, you know, is looking at test scores, and then that trickles down to the principal putting that pressure on the teachers, and then that trickles down to the teachers putting pressure on the students. As opposed to if that school of teachers and students and principal was independent from that superstructure where things have to be quantified and sort of aggregated, um, then the creativity of the adults could be unleashed, and that's what I see at a lot of independent schools is there's just more creativity unleashed because people have more freedom. What's happened with charter schools is the seed of that insight was there, but they're still tied in to this much larger system of public education, and it's become a very competitive marketplace of schools because it's so plugged in to a sort of, you know, late capitalist, like hyper-commodified sort of just capitalist economy where we're judging schools based on these outputs and there's a lot of money tied to those judgments, schools are in competition with each other and charter schools are in competition with district schools and it's actually just um, accelerating the race to the bottom in terms of the hyper-focus being on manipulating those test scores. So schools have perverse incentives to really just focus on the test scores because that's how they're being judged and they're competing with each other because the scale is too big. So I would say what we need to do is to find a way to actually take that that the seed of the idea of charter schools, which is giving schools more autonomy, but actually authentically give public district schools more autonomy and release them from the burden of um, of, of of being in these larger systems where schools are in competition with each other. And we need some real leadership at the system level down. To really see the wisdom of that kind of decentralization, right? But that's where where you get into the mind states and the perspectives of leadership, because if people are not really seeing the logic of decentralization and the logic of like creative emergence and how beautiful things can arise in independent schools if they have freedom, even if they're tied into a public education system, um, and and to let go of the more reduced perhaps more modernist notions of value and order and assessment and um, accountability, right? Like we have to actually grow beyond some overly simple ideas about accountability and assessment and get into more nuanced understanding of, okay, well, if I have independent public district schools where principals are actually free to create the best community they can with their parents and their teachers, you know, and we need to have accountability around that, well, it should just be more qualitative, you know, is what it comes down to. I mean, I could envision a public district where system-level people go visit schools and spend time in those schools and do qualitative assessments and surveys and interviews and just get a sense of what's going on at that school. And so it sounds I like, think that that could
0: work. It sounds like you're describing sort of a Catch-22 situation in that Right now, that sort of qualitative sort of assessment um, involves a level of trust, right? If you can't count the beans, then you're trusting that the beans are in the bag. And developmentally as a society, I don't know if we're quite there at that level of trust, but yet if we could get there, then our kids going through the process of education now would be able to trust their fellow human to educate their kids to get them to that point so true
2: and trust the trust is really key there and it really it really and that's where we also tie into all these other factors of like why you know what what are all the reasons why in, in the society that we're living in we're so hyper individuated right and and we have these um we've been sort of trained in many ways to value individualism and meritocracy and And we've sort of gotten away from a more trust-based, relationship-based way of relating to each other, Um, probably just because the complexity of society just continues to increase and the scale is so big, Um, and, and it's not a simple matter. But in my experience, at the level of a school and a neighborhood, the relationships can be really rich and people really can trust each other.
1: Well said. In one of our first episodes we did... We talked about the issue of loneliness uh, and and uh, how you know Barack Obama's Surgeon General uh, considers it an epidemic uh, that uh, is is killing uh, people uh, at an alarming level and and really much of what you describe in terms of intergenerational connection uh, collaboration um recognizing the interconnection of all beings uh, really is to me, is an antidote to some of our collective problems that we're facing uh, in a hyper individualistic culture and uh, and and so, you know, maybe that, if we can recognize the epidemic that we are in and and the level of, you know, I work at a university, and um, you know, part of it for um, for my main job, and in uh, you know, speaking with folks at the counseling center, working with students, you know, anxiety, depression, uh, loneliness are right at the right at the top, and uh, so it's kind of you know, it's ironic because we have in so many ways. Uh, maybe this is a bridge towards what you may want to talk about with technology, but in so many ways we are more connected than we ever have been. But um, that the depth of that connection is is seems to be problematic.
2: Yeah, no, it's so true. It's so true, and I, I think that alienation is is a big problem, and it is related to technology. And I, I think it's just a very interesting time that we're in now, right? Because we can see historically, I mean, there's such a directionality and a trajectory toward just increasing complexity and increasing scale um, and, you know, big centralized, powerful nation states even and, you know, big, huge global economy and everyone's kind of plugged in as 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 an individual um, and feeling like there's some loss that's happening there. But it also feels like we're reaching... A sort of precipice point where, like, there's a breakdown coming, right? And it's just it's not working for people. Like, people are psychologically and emotionally unhappy, and the amount of um, drugs and antidepressants people are on is is, is insane. And the, the amount of suicide that we have is really is really scary. And just 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 the stress that we have in our schools for our children, parents burnout. You know, it's really it feels like both economically and psychologically, emotionally, people are ready for some sort of phase shift, you know? And the interesting sort of catch-22 that we keep coming to in terms of it's like we have these broader, deeper perspectives available where we can envision, you know, really beautiful, idealized, decentralized educational environments, but that's actually just not what people are sort of thinking about or, or expecting. But whenever I talk to people, it seems like it's really easy to resonate and it, 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 it's really easy to actually come to sort of share that ideal. Um, and similarly with technology, like we're all plugged into our phones and we're all you know becoming somewhat addicted and like the dopamine release that we're getting in our brain every time we click on something is like influencing our behavior and our habit patterns. Um, But at the same time, I feel like there is a pretty widespread um, hunger for more human connection and for people who are raising children now, you know, to really want something for their children that's not just a continuation of the road we're going down now. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I don't know what the future holds because I think that some things are in motion that are not going to stop. Like it's, it's not like we're going to go back to a less technological time, and it's not like I would even advocate for that. Um, but I do think that we need to be aware of the dangers of technology and the importance of kids having downtime and time in nature and not losing sight of the fact that we are just physiologically – and energetically connected to our ecosystems, right? And like children and having time in nature and allowing the ecosystem of their mind and body to be in tune with and integrated with the ecosystem of the biosphere is what's going to enable you know, relationships for them that will empower them to actually live a certain way to help take care of the biosphere, right? Like we're so disconnected from each other and we're so disconnected from from the earth and nature and that is connected to our relationship to technology so for me just to get more concrete as a parent you know my daughter you know we had almost zero screen time for the first three years of her life right like i i i wanted her to grow up in a world where her sort of natural state was in relationship with human beings and plants and the earth and outside, and and, and just just having that sort of embodied life. And even now that she's nine years old, it's still, like, it's very limited. Like, we as parents have the responsibility to help establish the habits and the norms for our children. Um, And I think we need to do it with this broader perspective in mind of, you know, it's not just about getting through the day. It's really about how are you teaching your child to be a human being and what does it mean to be a human being in the world. And even if it means we have smartphones and we have access to tons of information, um, and technology is going to continue, you know, and maybe, maybe computers and screens can replace books and chalkboards. Um, but one point that I really try to hammer home with, with, with people talking about education is that they can't replace people, you know, like technology can't replace human relationship and it also can't replace the biosphere. So like those are two things that we need to continue to be engaged with and have healthy relationships with and whatever we do in terms of digital technology, we want to integrate it into our life so that it strengthens and improves our human relationships and improves the health of the biosphere and our relationship to nature. Um, And again, like, I feel like everything I'm saying, it feels so obvious. And I don't feel like people would really disagree with it. So it's just funny how so much collective human behavior is not moving in a direction that would sort of um, be aligned with the sort of ideals that I'm talking about. And, 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 and then we're back to that catch-22, I guess, in terms of why are people you know, not able to set those boundaries.
0: Well, I think we have a, a love obsession with, with tools, And, you know, I mean that in a figurative way as well as literal. Like we love our tools, our phones, our computers, our access to knowledge in the greater world. But also in the educational system, we focus on the tools, learning the basics of mathematics or how a sentence is structured rather than grabbing the curiosity that that a child naturally has and fostering that and then providing and teaching them how to use the tool to get to the answer they're looking for. I mean, my, my child is no exception. She spent the first, you know, four years of her life that she could talk asking why, 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 why? And if I had spent that time handing her uh, a piece of paper and a pencil and saying, you have to learn math in order to get your answer, she probably wouldn't have done it. But to, spark that curiosity and that creativity and the tool is an afterthought to get there, then, you know, things would probably go better. I don't know.
1: Um, Brad, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, you've gave some, I I think some really neat ideas and I just want maybe for you to expand on that. So most of our listeners, um, are going to have children in public schools, or maybe there are children in public schools listening to our podcast. Um, so what what are your recommendations in terms of supplementing the experience and, you know, that can transcend and include, you know, the the conventional model of education? Because after all, you know, even even uh even if your kid goes to public school for 180 days a year they're outside of school for you know 185 days a year and and uh, and they are outside of school for you know uh, 16 of the maybe 24 hours out of the day and so there's a there's a, a tremendous amount of time where a parent can have, uh, a huge influence on their child's experience. And so um, how, do, how does a person, in your opinion, uh, that doesn't get to go to Brad Kirshner's school, uh, you know, supplement their student's experience so that they can have a, uh, you know, your nine-year-old child's kind of experience?
2: Yeah, I think it's funny because it may be counterintuitive, and I think the challenge for a lot of parents is really allowing themselves to trust in the simplicity of it because less is often more. And I, I think when it comes to raising children, it really is true in so many ways that less can be more. And like you said, in terms of you know the amount of time that a parent can have with their child and the impact that can have, but really if you look at people's lives... How much time are they really spending where, they're, where the quality of the time is such that they are fully present, they're, they're not doing anything other than being with their child and seeing what comes out of that relationship, right? So like being with children in a way that's conducive to their overall development and actually helping them to manifest their long-term goals in terms of being complex thinkers being humanitarians, being people who are going to be oriented to the world in a way um, where they're where they're oriented towards service and being of use and and sort of helping to make the world a better place and feeling good about themselves and being healthy and happy, all those goals are actually going to come most naturally to people who are just tuned into a relationship of just love and play. Like it really, like one thing I say to parents: child development really does come down to love and play and having healthy, secure attachment, right? And understanding, you know, I mean, there's a 90% correlation between ADHD and insecure attachment, right? 90% of of children who are diagnosed with ADD or ADHD do not have secure attachment. Like, the the, the attachment relationship to the parent where they simply feel safe to be comforted, to process emotions, to explore, to create... um, and they feel a real sense of unconditional love and authentic positive self concept, you know, that's fostered by appropriate opportunities to develop skills and get genuine feedback. Um, that is really the foundation. So it simply is about being in a relationship to your child as an individual, and you can't predetermine it. So, like when I'm with my daughter, it's just an ongoing, playful, really fun experience of being with a young person who is so. Creative and different and erratic, and just always coming up with different ideas. And, you know, sometimes I might want to go for a walk and she doesn't, or she wants to do something else, but it's simply being in relationship with that person. Um, and, you know, maybe to be more simple, like lots of reading, right? So we read tons of books, and I read lots of books on my own, and we read books together, and developing um, language around shared interests is really important so that you know so that the child has a background of concepts and ideas and conceptual structures that will help them make sense of the world but i would say it's it's just so simple that really often when it comes to parenting in the 21st century it's addition by subtraction you know like if, if we actually have firmer boundaries around screen time and we have maybe firmer boundaries around what we eat too and we're sort of just ensuring the basics that our kids are not like eating junk food and looking at a screen for a significant portion of their life and they're actually forced to be in a relationship with us directly and figuring out how we want to spend our time together, um, they're going to be all the more likely to be securely attached to you as an adult and therefore um, to just have a positive self-concept and be more likely to, to continue to explore and take risks and engage in the world that's going to lead to them continuing to grow on their own path. Because as a parent, too, one thing you have to realize is you can't control it. And that's that. That's one of the hardest things as a parent, is you want so much for your child to be a certain way. You want them to behave a certain way. You want them to be successful in what they do. Um, and it's not about being happy all the time. It's about really just letting them be who they are and following their lead and being responsive and attuned to them. And I, I just keep coming back to that. It's actually it's actually a spiritual practice of being attuned to your child and really to whoever you're with. And being aware enough of your own mind and your own thoughts um, that you can actually, you know, reduce your reactivity and your distractibility and your disorganization and your constant mental elaboration, right? And increase your own equanimity and capacity to focus attention for instance on your child and your increased organization of mind and your ability to silence your own mental activity and have a continuity of awareness so that you're creating a field in which that is the way to be a human being and the child is tuning in to that field that you're creating you know with your awareness of like this is how to be a human being together and this is what I'm interested in and You know, it's just, it's so simple and natural, but the tricky part is getting people just tune into their own life in that way, right? So it's really, again, it's really not about the child that always comes back to, it's about the parent, it's about the adults in the room, and given the way that we've been raised and the society that we've come up in, you know, how unhealthy are we? How disorganized are we? How stressed out and unhappy are we? And what can we do to really shift our lives so that we're creating a model for our children? Because that's actually another big point I'd want to make is whether you're talking about parenting or teaching, it's fundamentally not didactic, right? Like you can only teach so much in a didactic, straightforward, explicit way. That's generally not how people absorb information in a way that's really going to be meaningful to them, right? We learn mostly through osmosis, right? Like mostly through modeling. Like we actually are so impacted by the people around us and the world around us. And we're taking in so much information and it's informing how we act and it's informing our being in the world that really being sensitive to how sensitive our children are is really the key, which is another huge insight I've gained as a parent is just seeing how sensitive my child is. Like if I just change my tone of voice the slightest bit, To show frustration or anger or disappointment, it has a huge impact on her, right? I mean, we we can have how many times have we been through really significant emotional meltdowns because my tone of voice was such that I communicated frustration to her, even though I thought I was holding it together, right? But she's so tuned in because she cares so much and we're so attached that those real subtle differences – matter. And being a parent means you're getting feedback about how much your tone of voice matters, right? You're getting feedback about how much what you say matters. And if you actually engage the process as a parent or a teacher where you're open to that feedback and you're wanting to learn from that feedback and you're actually wanting to be a better person through that process of getting feedback from this young person who you honor and love so much that can be the most transformative thing in your life, regardless of how many books you've read or if you've done retreats or whatnot. Like, actually being tuned into that feedback can be a really major catalyst for for personal transformation. And that's the kind of transformation we need, right? I mean, it's funny, just thinking now, I feel like if we as adults would just tune into kids more, that is what would actually resolve the Catch-22, because right? that would enable us to actually go through the growth that we need to go through so that we are more able to create educational environments for our children that are healthy for them. Like They're showing us the way. Every time they break down, every time they cry, every time they disengage, every time they pull away, every time they don't want to do what we're telling them to do, if we were actually open to that feedback and able to be responsive to that feedback, we'd be engaging a process of growth that would enable us to keep getting better at shaping the environment for them, so that less of those conflicts are happening, and then it's a mutually beneficial relationship. So that's the that's the sort of ideal sort of process that I that I have in mind. But it's simple, but it's not easy, I suppose.
1: No, it's rich. I that's beautiful, and I I'm uh, you know I'm inspired and uh, to to kind of you know. Connect with my daughter in the, in the many ways that you describe, and and I, I hope our listeners are inspired as well to to kind of uh, take another look at how they're connecting with their children, child, and uh, to create a more uh, in-tuned experience. That so we're at one onement really, right? You know, we're yeah at one it's, with
2: that's
1: what it's all about. And then the process
2: and the goal, right, are they, they just collapse into each other. Because it's like if we're, if we're actually engaged in that process, then we've already reached the ideal. We just need to keep doing it and keep practicing, right, and not get sidetracked. There's, a, there's so many things that pull us away from that. Um, but if that's what we're doing, then, then there's nowhere else to go and there's nothing else to do, right? Just enjoy it. And you can actually just, like to me, focusing on just enjoying the process again, and this is something I actually try to say at parents: if you actually f- just focus on the process and enjoy the process, that will lead to the best outcomes, right? And you 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 have to trust that and embrace that insight. Um, but it's actually you know being too worried about things like accountability and assessment and outcomes that that take away the possibility for the kind of relationship that I'm that I'm describing.
1: Yeah, the the you know less is more, and the simplicity of it all is is really um, uh, is really awesome. And it you know it reminds me of one of my favorite Tao passages from the Tao Te Ching. You know, a good traveler has no fixed plans, and kind of allows their intuition to guide and and really you know that that kind of unique road that you've. You've helped us all see that each child, you know, with their own individualism and own unique expression, are going to take a very unique path to their uh, developmental process of maturation over time, to to fully function uh, in in our society and uh, but to be open to the possibilities of how that child, where they're going to go, and and what different kinds of, uh, ways that they need to interact with the universe to kind of get to wherever it is that they're going to be going is, is a truly remarkable path that requires us to surrender a lot of our egoic, uh, drives of, of wanting folks to be a certain way. So, you know, this is truly a path of development for the child, but also truly a path of development for the adult. So, you know, with that, Brad, I I, I just want to you know let you have some final comments, but I just want to thank you. I think there's some there's probably a follow up conversation. I see. Uh, you know, you would mentioned higher education. Um, you know, Ian and I have both uh, worked in higher education, and uh, I I think we could have a, a wicked discussion along those lines and and probably deep dive more into some of the inequities and the, and based on location, some of the things that we started talking about at the beginning. But uh, with that, thank you so much. Any final comments, Brad? Well,
2: no, I thank you so much for the time. And I'm realizing now just reflecting on our conversation, I'm glad that we just, just took the time to really get into the actual adult child relationship. Cause that's really where, where
1: it's all at this this discussion is just it's about being real uh trying to get at stuff it's we're not uh we're we're just beings trying to trying to get at it so this was a conversation where we just were beings trying to get at it and i think where we ended up was a pretty amazing place that i know i'm inspired ian where are you
0: at oh definitely i really enjoyed this conversation quite a bit
1: so let's do it again. Let's dance again, Brad. What do you say? I would love that. Okay. Well, many blessings uh, and good luck uh, with your you know, consulting work, uh, work at your school, uh, keep developing on you know, working with your daughter, and uh, many blessings on the road ahead.
0: Thank you, brother. Such a pleasure. All right. Be well. Take care. Wicked Discussions is recorded at Jacobs Lane Studio. We'd like to thank Jesse Anser for our artwork. Recording, editing, and theme song are all done by me. You can email the show at wickeddiscussions at gmail.com or please visit our Facebook page and join in the discussion. If you like what you've heard so far, please give us a rating on iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. All the materials produced here are the copyright of Mark Fischler and Ian Halter. Until the next show, keep listening to each other.